My name is Sarah from Weird Horizon and as always thank you for joining me and thank you for listening this week. We're back to sort of basics in terms of format. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to have a really deep dive into the history of Hollow Earth theory. Find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello again friends. Thank you for joining me again. I know the last couple of weeks I've changed up the format a little bit. This style of research can get quite lonely if you're only exclusively doing this. And I think it was a little bit unfair to some of the content to imply that it was like a purely individual subject. A lot of the time, most of these subjects have come out through human interactions. That's kind of the point of them. So I guess it felt a bit more true to the discussion to bring in a bit more of an actual discussion. So I I hope you've enjoyed it. That lead into the hollow interior of our planet where the lost ten tribes of Israel today dwell in perfect harmony, where lifespans equal to those of the Methuselahs of the Bible, whose only desire is to live in peace. Their flying saucers in defence of their country at times are seen on our surface world. They don't come to destroy, they are waiting. Waiting for us to discover that world peace is the only answer, not without God, but with him. We must prepare for their return. See the evidence. Look at the possibilities. Consider those who have gone there, and you will discover truths that have been hidden from the foundation of the world. Click here to learn about the terrestrial paradise that is our hollow earth. If you follow said link, you'll be taken to a page describing exactly what this hollow earth is like and about its current inhabitants. It is a terrestrial paradise, where the original Garden of Eden is located today, where the lost tribes of Israel live, where the political kingdom of God is located, where the lost Viking colonies of Greenland migrated to, where vanquished Germans escaped to after World War II, where flying saucers come from, where people live to be hundreds of years old in perfect health, where peace and prosperity exists for everyone, where real-life Jurassic Park exists with exotic animals, and where heaven is located. It seems like to some, hollow earth theory has become a kind of unifying theory, bringing in all manner of paranormal, supernatural, mythical and speculative theories and giving them a space to live out their lives away from prying eyes. But the question we're asking today is, How did we get here? Let's start from the beginning. Needless to say, the idea of a hollow, inhabitable Earth is not one that came from a vacuum. Metaphysical and religious themes of underworld and subterranean fiction are almost as long as the oral tradition itself. Even if you can't bring to mind specific stories, myths and legends, Human myth-making is rich with ideas of sunken cities, cavernous subterranean worlds and lost civilizations. One of the varying reasons for its popularity is raised by L.A. Chaplow, whose theory on legacy of John Cleve Sims in Antarctic exploration and fiction is generously available online and whose work I'm going to shamelessly lean on. Their suggestion for part of the notion's popularity is the idea of mythological satisfaction, i.e. the link between 
acceptance of clearly false beliefs and their acceptance by a willing people. There may just be some narratives, he supposes, some beliefs that are just more satisfying to believe than others, and that lead otherwise rational people to believe in things that seem irrational. So I won't directly dwell on that too much, but this idea of satisfaction will come up again and again. But as we mentioned, this idea of the subterranean or underworld myths is not linked to any specific civilization exclusively. It's one of these ideas that seems to pop up independently wherever you find people. But I will briefly outline just a couple of hollow earth notions in mythological and religious texts and ideas. A very, very brief rundown, of course. So you have Tibetan Buddhism and Shambhala and the idea of the ancient city located inside the earth. You also have, in Hindu mythology, the underworld that is referred to as Patala. You have, of course, Christian hell, the literal hell that is apparently beneath our feet, according to some readings of the Bible, of course. Mesopotamian religious beliefs had their own narrative as well of a journey to an interior garden. So again, interior, interior earth. And of course you have ancient Greek myths with the land of the dead and the literal underworld. This is of course ignoring a lot of references and beliefs that I just don't know enough about to cover in enough detail. But I'm going to leave it there because like I said, I just don't know enough to give it full justice. But in summary, the underworld in its most literal sense, is described variously as a point of origin for peoples or ideas, as well as the seat of the afterlife, the literal entrance to the land of the dead, and the realm of ancient gods and civilizations. It is also the destination of many pilgrimages, and cited as the source of either our ancient ancestors, devil creatures, or any number of mysterious peoples. It can explain the disappearance and reappearance of any number of unexplained phenomena. Now to me this sounds very similar to the idea of the fourth dimension and fourth dimensional beings of spiritualistic and paranormal thought. And the idea of an unseeable dimension existing alongside our own that occasionally impresses on ours and can make itself visible. It's not to say that it is, but in storytelling it clearly serves a very similar purpose. It is the earth that we ultimately all return to, whether we're buried or simply our energy is absorbed back into the life cycle. It is the root of all life and therefore carries an inherent fascination. But hollow earth theory isn't just built directly off of this mythological influence. Is not sprung just from ancient stories of afterlife or ancient peoples or even subterranean caverns. Early hollow earth theory, as we know it, lends on early sort of scientific proof, and that's what I'm going to dig a little bit into now. So hollow earth theory, as we find it through Rodney Clough's website, does not simply suppose that these myths and legends, like that, as we say, did develop independently in a lot of cases, it doesn't just suppose that these may be based on a shared truth, There's actually quite a complicated journey to get us from these shared narratives to what we find on ourhollowearth.com. Hollow Earth, as we will learn, is inextricably linked with this idea of looking back at a simpler 
historical, specifically scientific and exploratory time that simply doesn't exist. It kind of leans on a concept we will all be familiar with, which is nostalgia. So skipping ahead a little, modern hollow earth theories have few scientific supporters and fewer still people seeking a justification from the scientific community. The historical scientists that briefly and in very certain and specific ways supported early hollow earth theory as it exists today, it's thought that somehow these scientists were unmarred by the corruption and the grand schemes that mean modern thinkers aren't to be trusted. So whereas modern scientists are presumed to be in on it in some way, historical thinkers are believed to be more trustworthy inherently by these earnest believers, it seems to be supposed that these older scientists were unique in that they were trusting their guts and senses in a way that is somehow been lost in modern scientific thought, whether you believe with that or not. But that is to say, the scientists I will talk about now are still applauded in some hollow earth circles as a basis for the theory itself, whereas there really aren't many modern scientists who support the idea or many modern scientists who are even used to try to support the idea because as mentioned modern hollow earth theory kind of goes along with a distrust of authority in general including a distrust of scientists so i think a part of it comes down to that a lot of these earlier scientists were polymaths and explorers and uniting thoughts from various disciplines into kind of unifying theories that might fit our idea of what is true better than the truth actually does. Again, this idea of a narrative satisfaction. But again, it ignores the fact that all the people I'm going to talk about, their theories were constantly evolving and changing, and often their work is chopped down to represent a viewpoint, assuming that few people will want to consult the source and fewer will have the skills knowledge or access to the huge bodies of work left behind by them. Most of these scientists, their thought evolved to the point that they no longer believed in hollow earth theory pretty soon after their supposed support of it as they were scientists. (laughs) Kind of their job to hypothesize, prove, disprove and evolve with the current scientific thought. So I will go over briefly some of the very few scientific mentions of hollow earth theory as we know it, as we need to know where we came from to think about where we are going. Super short summary. These scientists are of course not simpler than modern ones. They were leaders in their fields whose work happened to overlap with hollow earth thinking in a few brief and very specific ways as part of a continuum of natural philosophy and science. So this isn't an exhaustive list, as a lot of earlier scientific works are hard to find and frankly even harder to understand, which is probably why some of our later figures managed to make a name for themselves with their versions of the theories that relied less on a scientific backing. But anywho, let's get into the science. So let's start with Kircher and the Mundus Subterraneus, or Underground World. Jesuit scholar Athanasius Kircher published 1665 an atlas intended to lay out before the eyes of the curious reader all that is rare, exotic and portentous contained in the fecund womb of nature. 
or the idea of the earthly sphere that exists in the divine mind. Now, Kircher was later named the Master of a Hundred Arts. He had been called by some the last Renaissance man, and his hypotheses merged ideas from myth, religion, and what he observed scientifically. For example, he posited that the tides may in fact be created by the movement between terranean and subterranean oceans. I'd like to say at this point that the ideas of tides being influenced by the moon were were around. This was just an alternative scientific thought that he posited because, as I said, he was kind of merging this legends and bringing them into this unifying scientific theory. So he posited that tides may be created by the movement between this terranean above ground and subterranean below ground ocean. So when the tides go up, up, you know, on our visible oceans, that's when they're sort of at their lowest inside the earth and, you know, opposite. It's just a movement of it flowing between two different oceans that are connected. He also recognised that fossils found in the ground were, in fact, human remains. However, he wrongly supposed that some of the larger fossils might be the remains of larger giant humans, rather than dinosaurs, as they turned out to be. And he extended this further to suggest that the striation of weathering and water erosion patterns on mountains may in fact be the water exposing the Earth's own skeletal structures. So as you may have already guessed, Kircher's theories drew in myths and legends, obviously very human-centric theories and coming at it from this idea of the earthly sphere as a reflection of the divine mind. So again, very religious idea that puts humans at the centre of this. I love the idea, this recurrent idea that we will see in these theories that what you see at the small scale can be replicated in the large scale. Now, as we said, this might be one of the reasons why people find some of these early scientific theories so useful when talking about hollow earth, this idea of what's observable at the small scale, what makes sense to us at our small human scale can be applied out to the world. So we ourselves have our own skeleton and maybe the earth is a living being as we understand it. The earth has its own skeleton, that's what he supposed. Now, where it gets specifically related to more hollow earth stuff is that he also devoted space in his atlas to Atlantis, which is a fictional island that stems from a Plato allegory, but is thought too many to this day to exist inside the hollow earth. In Plato's allegory, Atlantis represents the overreaching naval power that is eventually defeated by Plato's theoretical concept of state outlined in the Republic. Atlantis is punished by the gods and submerged into the Atlantic Ocean. So Atlantis has not only lost its real link to this Plato allegory, this idea of the ideal work of states, it's now kind of just become shorthand for any lost advanced civilization and has a long history of being misinterpreted as history as being historical fact and being expanded on in various utopian fiction which is also one of the building blocks for hollow earth theory. It has been suggested that Plato's allegory may be inspired by older historical or mythical events but the evidence for that is is hard to prove 
but nonetheless Kircher included a map of Atlantis in his atlas, showing that to him at least he believed it had a physical existence. So I'm going to quote a little bit from an essay on Kircher now. All of my references will be available in the show notes. So Kircher offered a lengthy discussion of people who lived in caves, their societies and their economy. He reported on the remains of giants, and he went into detail on the kinds of lower animals who belonged to the lower world, including dragons. So Kircher quite explicitly implied a inner civilization, a cave-dwelling human civilization. And the fact that they are supposedly much larger than us, um, again, brings in this idea of an ancient ancestor or the idea of some sort of biologically rich paradise that may exist inside the earth. Now, of course, Kircher was wrong about as often as he was right. And he theorised just so broadly as he intended to unite what he knew across various subjects. He was a voracious learner, drawing in everything he could. And it shows a really interesting application of the thought of the time. It really reflects just his learning style. In his view, the whole earth is not solid, but everywhere gaping, and hollowed with empty rooms and spaces and hidden burrows. And I think this just reflects his style of learning, this idea that sort of the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. So the more you figure out, the more there seems to be gaps in your knowledge and hollows and empty rooms and hidden burrows, as he says. The more you learn, the more you seem to find connections between these things. So I think his idea of the earth and the hollow earth reflected his idea of just the world in general and knowledge at this time. There were just a lot of gaps in scientific thought that he was trying to explain. There are a lot of things we did know, but there are a lot of things we didn't know then. For example, for Kircher, volcanoes were vent holes for the interior world. So he painted this idea of an interior world that was alive and sort of breathing and in, in many ways its own beast. The idea that the world is a living creature in the same way that we are a living creature, with breath and with skeletons and bones. He also described it as self-governing, with immense fires inside, tempered with oceans that are all keeping each other in balance. So, as you may have gathered from what I was saying of his theories, Kircher didn't imply that the hollow earth was like a crust housing one large hollow interior, but he described it as a more intricate interconnected web of fire and water with a kind of circulatory system like that of a human organism. So Kircher applied his knowledge across disciplines. In his other works, he applied environmental adaptation to a world post the flood. So with species being displaced by the flood, adapting to their new environment, becoming the variety of species we know today. So that brings in this idea of environmental adaptation and specifically applies it in a theological manner. I really like how his theories seem to need to scale up to be viable and to be based on something observable at a small scale, described as Kircher's macro and microcosm. And this is an idea that others will run with later, so remember this macro and microcosm but moving on so next up we're going to talk about edmund halley and magnetic 
north. So Edmund Halley was an astronomer, physicist, mathematician, and the second ever astronomer royal in Britain. He is most famous for his use of Newton's law of motion to compute the reappearance of Halley's comet, which is of course named after him, a prediction which he did not live to see but was proven correct. But it is in the 1690s when he began to turn his theories to terrestrial magnetism, that is how he gets roped into hollow earth theory. In a proposal of 1692, Halley theorised as a way of explaining anomalous compass readings, the idea that something large was moving underneath our feet and influencing the Earth's magnetic field. This would then explain the changing distance between geographic north, or true north, and magnetic north on the compass. So he suggested a hollow Earth in an article for Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London called An Account of the Cause of the Change of the Variation of the Magnetic Needle with an hypothesis on structure of the internal parts of the Earth, which is catchy, of course. He suggested a hollow Earth consisting of an outer shell about 500 miles thick, which is about 800 kilometres, and two spinning inner concentric shells and an innermost core. So I'm going to say at this point that the deepest humans have ever actually dug down into the core is around seven and a half miles, which is the Kola Superdeep Borehole in Russia. He suggested that there was like an interior atmosphere that separated these shells and that each shell had its own magnetic pole and each sphere was rotating independently at different speeds. This rotation and the movement within would explain the variable difference between the measurable poles as mentioned. He also thought that the aurora borealis might be linked to a leak in these escaping luminous gases from the atmospheres between the shells. In reality, he was kind of right, but instead of these nested shells inside of our Earth containing atmospheres luminous and able to support life, what he was actually picking up on was the molten core of the Earth and its tendency as a huge ball of metal to influence the Earth's magnetic field. But as said, Edmund Halley was a physicist. He believed in the physics, and this was a hypothesis that fit the physics as he saw them. He was not one for mythological story-making. As we said, he predicted the path of his eponymous comet, and although he didn't live to see it, he was right. I'd just like to put that out there. He wasn't making a guess or some hypothesis from some interesting stories that he knew. He was making a scientific prediction from what he could see, and based on the proven knowledge of those who came before him, such as Newton... And it was the prevailing theory for a time until disproven in an excellent application of the scientific method. Halley was very open straight out of the gate with just how mad this theory sounded. So here's something he wrote about it. If I shall seem to advance anything that looks like extravagant or romantic, he wrote in 1692, the reader is desired to suspend his censure till he have considered the force and number of the many arguments which concur to make good so new and so bold a superstition. 
So he was working with Newton's freshly published Principia and at the advent of what many consider to be modern science. So it was a new and bold superstition, as he says, but for various reasons, the association between Halley and Hollow Earth remains to this day as much as he probably wishes it didn't. Like I said, this was a bold supposition he admitted as such. It seemed a strange, romantic, extravagant thing to say, but it was based on a lot of supporting science. Now, the science can support a viewpoint and it still be wrong, but it was very persuasive for a time until we realised the truth. This theory was disproven, so I'm sure Halley, believing in the science as much as he did, hates the fact that he is forever associated with hollow earth and a theory that has since been disproven by his colleagues. But as we said, this, this association remains to this day. And I think one of the reasons is uh, linking it to the Aurora Borealis uh, links it to the idea of the poles again, with the relatively unexplored poles and the idea that they might house some secret entrance to something, whether that be interior earth or something else. This theory also deals directly with anomalous compass reading at the poles. And again, this would be something that now would be counted as proof of something going on in there. You know, anything anomalous, anything outside of what we believe should be the truth is inherently fascinating and is the fuel for superstition and conspiracy theorists. And another reason is the fact that this theory directly suggests a livable interior, an idea that instantly captures the imagination. Edmund Halley will probably hates the idea that he is associated with Hollow Earth when we look at what Hollow Earth is today, but nevertheless we now start to leave the realms of people who believed in Hollow Earth for a time to those whose name has been associated with the idea wrongly. So Leonard Euler was a Swiss mathematician, physicist, astronomer, logician and just the smartest guy in the world apparently um <laughs> among other things he has a hugely influential body of work still invaluable to this day on things such as fluid dynamics optics music astronomy mathematics uh, unfortunately astronomy of course is where we meet him today so euler has been associated with hollow earth for a while the euler archive the web base for the Euler Archive um, today, in 2007 published a PDF trying to trace back to where and why his name became involved in Hollow Earth ideas. And although it treats it as a bit of a harmless misunderstanding, so it's titled Euler and Hollow Earth, Fact or Fiction, it shows that even in 2007, before modern Hollow Earth became what it is, it shows that even then awareness of his name's association with the theory it brings together numerous mentions of his name in relation to it and sort of a souring of goodwill towards the theory because they felt the need that they had to put something out to try and distance his name from the theory. So as you will see, it transforms from a kind of harmless, fanciful theory into something quite dangerous and damaging. But back to why he's associated with it in the first place. So the link again comes from an application of the accepted scientific thought of the time. Euler, like Newton, believed that the Earth was like a fluid with a crust and would therefore flatten at the poles due to the centrifugal force sort of drawing it outwards as it spins. Think of a big bucket full of dirt 
So although it's not entirely true, of course, it is partly true and that the Earth is at least partially molten in the core and that there is a partial flattening of the poles. So it's not entirely untrue. And again, this fascination with the poles gets it roped in with the idea of the poles serving as the entrance to some sort of interior. But it's not the only reason that it's associated with it. In the 1750s, Euler was trying to explain the abnormal orbit of the moon. And this is before the advent of computers, when calculating the path of the moon was basically the challenge of celestial mechanics. So when Earth, the moon, the sun are considered to be point masses, this particular three-body problem is called the main problem of the lunar theory. And the main issue was Newton's laws, as trusted and revered as they were, didn't exactly fit the model. The the mathematics didn't exactly fit what was observed about the lunar paths. The equations of motion for the moon in an analytically closed form is impossible, as a mathematician Henri Poincaré proved in his famous paper on the three-body problem of 1889. Therefore, Euler posited that this behaviour could be made to fit the model by the moon being much larger than currently believed or even that Newton's calculations could be slightly wrong. Now, another way to fix the model, as as we say, it is a three-body problem, so it involves not just the moon, but the Earth and the sun as well. Another way to fix the model would have been to suggest the Earth having a lower mass than was currently believed, like potentially because it was hollow or at least partially hollow. However, Euler completely sidestepped this idea and never suggested it. But just the idea of this became associated with him anyway. Again, it was a way to make the sort of observed lunar paths fit the model. It was a way to make it fit, but he never suggested this at all. But there are other little things that he mentioned in his scientific writings that sort of vaguely outline it, which you will see. So this thought was one strengthened by a thought experiment in one of his published letters about what would theoretically happen if there was like a hole through the earth, so like a core through the earth. So in one of his letters he says, if you drilled a hole all the way through the earth and dropped a stone in the hole, what would happen? As we said, this was a thought experiment. He never suggested, in fact, that there was a hole. (laughs) He was just theorising about how a stone dropped in said hole would interact with gravity, because as we know, gravity acts from the central point of a large mass, so the idea of going towards the centre, the gravity would be affected in some way. These ideas of gravity and how it might behave closer to the Earth's core, again, is a theme that we will pick up on later. But he never explicitly said the Earth was hollow, or suggested that it may have a hollow cavern within, inhabited or not. His theories all just seem to hit the right points of interest, so this flattening of the poles, physics that don't fit our truth, or sort of our, what we feel like should be the truth of the masses of celestial bodies. It's though Euler sort of drew the blank space around which a modern hollow earth theory could populate. And so people found that and they sort of saw what they wanted to see and ran with it. Thank you for joining me in another part of our discussion on hollow earth. 
find me on twitter as weird horizon and wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening bye